As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we are going to be looking um, this uh, morning at verses 43 through 47. We are coming here towards the end of this major section on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we come to what many have described as that pinnacle point of, of the way that Christ is emphasizing to his disciples what does righteousness that, is, that surpasses the Pharisees, what does that righteousness look like? And we come here to the height and to the pinnacle of, of what Christ is sharing with us regarding that true biblical righteousness. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who loved you who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, help focus our hearts and our minds and our wills this morning as you once again call us as the disciples of your Son to embrace the virtues and the values and the practices of what it means to have a new birth in Christ, to have a new nature in Christ, to be those who have been um, brought out of sin and death and who have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places that we may indeed live as the children of light. Bless us, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked you uh, at the very beginning of this sermon series, I asked you to consider trying something. I asked you to consider reading through the Sermon on the Mount in its totality and doing that once a day for, for a week. And I asked you in doing that to read it honestly and write down all the places where the sermon makes you chafe. Now some of you did that. And I got some pretty cool reports from people that shared with me the different things that the Spirit was revealing to them of where the, what, is, what Jesus is preaching here, where it did make them uncomfortable, where it made them struggle, where there were even places that they just didn't like. And if there is anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, is supposed to, that is designed to make us feel that way, it is here as the very life 
and love of God is set before us as God's people. Not, not here to receive it, but to reflect it. Now, I'm going to just introduce this to us uh, today, and Lord willing, we will take it up again next week as we transition into chapter 6. And that's because I want to take time here, and I want to set this into its proper context so that you and I can, can come to realize just, just, how, how, just how much Jesus knew that what he was saying here was going to rub us the wrong way. Which would you prefer? If I were to give you some, some choices, would you rather sit in the seat of judgment or would you rather sit in the judgment seat and be judged? Which would you prefer? Would you prefer to be someone who rules or would you prefer to be someone who is ruled by another? What, which would you prefer? Would you prefer to have power over your enemies or for them to have power over you? Which would you prefer? To nurture hurt feelings and passionate dislike of those who hurt you or to love them. There is nothing technical or tricky or, or, or you know, anything that is not really on the nose with regards to what Jesus is telling us to do here. Love your enemies. Now, as we have been saying throughout this portion of the sermon, Jesus continues to correct um, false teaching where the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching, you know, hey, here's what God wants from you. And what they were teaching to the people of God was incorrect. They were teaching wrong things. They were providing incorrect interpretations of the Old Testament, and they were providing applications that contradicted the Old Testament as well. And so Jesus, as the embodiment of the Old Testament, comes and he stands before the people of God, and he's like, if your righteousness is going to surpass that of the, of the Pharisees, it's going to have to be based on what God has truly revealed. And so let me work through some of these big ones, some of these big problems where you are being incorrectly taught and incorrectly encouraged, where you are actually being led astray by those who themselves are blind guides. And so he's worked through this section where he says over and over, you have heard that it was said, but I say. And we know here that Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament, for if that were what he was doing, he would say, you have heard it was written. 
Instead, it is, you have heard that it was said. He is very specifically direct, directing his corrections to the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And here, as we come to this last section where Jesus is providing a correction, we see that the first half of, of what is said, you have heard it said, you shall, um, love, uh, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. This is the very first one where there is a clear, a clear contradiction um, to the Old Testament, or at, at least there is nowhere that you can find in the Old Testament where it says, hate your enemy. You can't find it. Now, Leviticus 19, as we read earlier in the service, calls us to love our neighbor. But there is nowhere in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemies. Now, so let's back up. Before we start jumping on the Pharisees and the scribes and pointing at them and, oh man, how, how can they get this so wrong? Let, let's take a second and let's do as Atticus Finch tells us. And let's try to take some steps in their shoes. The scribes and Pharisees are leading the people of God at a time when they are at the very end of their ropes. The life and experience of the daily Jew at this time was so different and so contradictory to the expectations that they had as the covenant people that they were reeling under the, the pressures of unfulfilled promises while at the same time struggling under, once again, another boot of a foreign enemy, standing with its foot on the neck of the people of God. The expectations that they rightly had as the covenant people of God is that God had made these promises. He had promised to them land and he had promised blessing. He had promised that as they followed him and trusted him, as they devoted themselves to him, and as, when they failed, as they would come to him through the sacrificial system, that as they embraced God through his means of grace, that they had a special role to play in being the people through whom the Messiah of the world would be born. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15 was going to come through the line of Abraham. But the people of God rejected him. And for Hundreds and hundreds of years, rather than respond to his saving grace, rather than respond to his, his uh, steadfast covenant love by responding with faith and repentance, they chased after the other gods. 
And after hundreds of years of unfaithfulness, God judged his people. He was faithful to the terms of the covenant that he had promised in Deuteronomy, that if you chase after the other gods, here's what I will do. Well, they had chased after them and chased after them and chased after them, and God in his patience tried to woo them back and woo them back and woo them back and was patient and patient and patient and patient. But rather than the patience of God calling them, uh, being something that they were responding to, they took it for granted. Well, if God's not going to do anything to us, we might as well continue what we are doing. Now, I know there is no one in this room that would raise their hand of ever thinking that. Well, God hasn't brought thunder upon my head for gossip, so maybe it's not that big of a deal to him. I'll just keep doing it. See, we, we've all been walking in, in, right here. Now, they did it at a corporate level. And the result is that the northern ten tribes were judged in 722. And then later in 586, the southern two tribes were, were left. and They were taken out of the land completely. The northern ten tribes were bred out of existence through the Assyrian Empire. And the southern two tribes, they were removed and they were taken to Babylon. Now, they didn't stay in Babylon. God was gracious and he brought them back. But if you recall from Ezekiel 36, he tells them, I'm bringing you back, but not because you've repented. I'm bringing you back because all that sin and, uh, and all that unfaithfulness you were doing here in the land and was corrupting the land, well, now you're doing it there too, and you're corrupting my name there as well as corrupting my name here. So the, for the sake of my name, I'm going to bring you from the nations and put you back here. And when they came back to the land, they were still under the authority of the Medo-Persian Empire. They were allowed to rebuild the wall. They were um, called by God and they were allowed by the Persian king to rebuild the temple. They were allowed, given permission to to re-engage in the cult system that, uh, of worship according to the Old Testament. They, they were given some privileges, but they always lived in the midst of their enemies. In fact, when I was a kid, one of my favorite stories was about Nehemiah. And as the workers were rebuilding the wall, it said that they had to hold a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other because they were having to fend off their enemies even as they were in the midst of rebuilding the wall. When the people of God came back to the land, they never experienced it as they had prior to their apostasy. And so they lived under the boot of the Medo-Persian Empire, well, at least until... Alexander the Great came along. And then they lived under the boot of Alexander the Great, who had a very special mission in trying to take all these various different people groups and cultures and religions and form them into one. And so it became worse under Alexander than it had been under the Persians. Well, then Alexander died, and his, his, 
uh, the kingdom was split amongst his generals, and they fought it out of who would who would have you know the the inheritance of of Alexander the Great, and the result was that for a time the the land of Israel was uh, under the governance of the Ptolemies, and then. The Ptolemies were defeated by the Seleucids, and so then they were under the, the, the boot of the Seleucids. And within the Seleucids, there was the height of, of, of what we would call an evil king, as Antiochus Epiphanes outlawed and banned everything Jewish. He shut down the temple. He didn't allow Sabbath. If you got caught having you know, any portion of, of the Old Testament, it was a capital offense and you were put to death. And then to crown his achievements, he sacrificed a pig on the bronze altar before the temple. This led to an uprising in the people of God who were trying to be faithful to him unlike the previous generations rose up. They took weapons, and they rebelled. Eventually, they were able to carve out a little little piece for themselves where where for about 70 to 80 years, they were kind of allowed to govern themselves, but always still under the authority of the Seleucids. Well, until Rome came along. In Rome took up the mission of Alexander the Great, where they were trying to unify. By the time we get to the New Testament, by the time you get to Jesus saying, love your enemies, the people of God have been living under the brutality of their enemies for hundreds of years. And make no mistake, if all you know about the history of the ancient Near East is what you learned in school, then you need to recognize that you uh, learned a, a very clean version of that history. You learned that history even as the textbooks that are used in secular schools have been written with an assumed Christian perspective where they have cleaned up and, and tried to minimize the things that were truly characteristic of those different civilizations and societies. And the bottom line is that the, the Babylonians were a wicked people who used violence and strength who used power and force, who used the sword to scare you and overwhelm you so that you would voluntarily enslave yourself to them. The Medo-Persians were no better. Alexander the Great was no better. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids were no better. The Romans were no better. These were civilizations that were built on myths and religions in which the gods themselves 
were self-centered gods who used their power and who used dishonesty and who used immorality and who used all these different ways to treat people as their slaves to use them to get what they wanted. And Jesus knows this. Now, why is this important? Because every one of us, when we hear Jesus say, love your enemies, are tempted to say, well, but what if my enemy is this bad? You and I are not living within this portion of the United States in Georgia. We are not living in an environment to be able to say that to Jesus, where Jesus is going to say, well, you know, I hadn't thought about that situation. We don't live in a time in which the brutality of the ancient Near East wasn't just the way things functioned, it was legal. The people of God struggling with an identity that, well, when we read the Old Testament, look at what we used to be. We used to have Moses. We used to have Abraham. We used to have David. We had Solomon. And they look back on those privileges that they had that they completely and totally wasted. And there was, and in the hearts and in the minds of those living in the first century, there was this desire to go back to those days, or at least, at least to go back to those days. But there was an expectation that when Messiah came, that they would become even more in a position of power and authority over the Gentiles. The expectation for Messiah was that he would be this, this rough and tough warrior who would show up and who would smite all of his enemies. And then the Jews would sit in the judgment seat with him and judge over the nations. Now there's a sense there where they're not wrong. Which is why it makes it all the more difficult for them to be in the position that they're in. We live under this brutal, savage regime. And our hopes are to be the exact opposite of what we are expecting. When Jesus says, love your enemies... trying to be careful here we have children you can ask me later what i would say if we weren't covenantal but if you know the history if you know what was legal jesus is coming across at best as naive at worst he's coming across as being a facilitator of evil. 
you and I do not live with the pressures that they lived, that the original audience lived with. But we do live in a time where because of the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, the culture of the West is changing. And, and those restraints that, that are part of the Christian faith that became part of Western culture, those restraints are disappearing. And what is happening is just like in the ancient Near East where power and authority and force, or as we say today, where might makes right was ruling the day, that is returning here and there. And the result for you and me is that we are in a time where we are not as influential as we used to be in American culture. We're living at a time in which it is not as easy to to just profess Christ and, and to pursue the personal peace and affluence of American culture. We're living in a time in which the, the power of the sword is, is uh, in terms of governmental power is being used to try to, to squeeze out and to limit the influence of the Christian faith from within Western society. Which means you and I are faced with the exact same temptation that faced these, this original audience. Love my enemy. Do you really know what you're asking? And the answer is yes. Across the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not merely facing the rise of cultural power through philosophy. They are facing an actual sword as the Islamic State has been wreaking havoc among Christians in other parts of the world, where the testimony of Christians is not just one in which they have to deal with the corrupting power of government and and politics. They are facing an actual sword and bearing witness like the followers of Christ in the first century. What Jesus is saying here in love your enemies is no different than Jesus saying, if you will follow me, you must take up your cross. Because the call to love your enemies is a call to participate in the God who loves his enemies. God himself is described as not being like the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. He is described here as the one who is good and beneficent. He is the creator that 
From the very beginning, as we read in Genesis 2, he made a world and he formed a garden sanctuary where he dwelled with his creation, where his creation was described as being bountiful and plentiful. It was a place of goodness and beauty. Anything that was needed and anything that could be wanted was provided by God in the beauty and bounty of that garden. But what we did was we chose to reject what he was offering to us there. We wanted to have the beauty and the bounty of the garden, but we wanted to have it without having him as well. And so we attempted to cut him out of the equation. And the result is that we lost that garden. The result is that we were cast into the wilderness east of Eden. But even in our rebellion, living east of Eden, God in his goodness provides us his sunshine and provides us the rain. Another way of saying this is God continued to provide everything that was necessary to sustain the life of his enemies. And in Adam, just in case you might be confused, every single person in this room had become God's enemies. God in his goodness. God in his beneficence continued to take care of those who rebelled against him and hated him. And what Jesus calls us to here is to be renewed in that identity we have as being sons of God. And if we are sons of God, we are to reflect our Heavenly Father. And how does our Heavenly Father deal with His enemies? He sustains them. And He shares His goodness with them. He acts for their benefit and not only his own. And so the calling that we have, beloved, if we are recipients of that love, right, that we just sang about moments ago, that, that we are to love the Lord who bought us, who pitied us when we were his enemies, we are called to embody that kind of beneficence to those who are using force and strength and harm to try to scare and to intimidate, who are trying to create an environment that, that will chase us away and, and cause us to voluntarily hide our, our heads in the sand and to just stay out of the way. But beloved, Jesus has forever done for us what was needed that we would never have to fear again. Jesus Christ willingly and lovingly went to the cross. The cross, which at that time was a symbol of Roman power. The cross, which was the physical symbol of the power and intimidation 
of the Roman Empire that said, stay out of our way or we will crucify you. Put it another way. Voluntarily submit yourself to our boot. Become our slave or we will crucify you. And people will stand around the cross and mock you and jeer you and make fun of you as you are gasping for breath. And as you die, the most painful and shameful death that we can think up to let you know who we are. Jesus died upon a symbol that in that day spoke of the power and the authority of Rome. And yet, because he willingly sacrificed himself upon that cross, the public symbol that the cross and the meaning of the cross has forever changed. That is now the cross is a public symbol of the victory of self-sacrificial love. How do we know that the cross and the love of enemy, how do we know that that wins? Well, because the cross did not defeat Jesus. It became the instrument by which he defeated all of his and all of our enemies. Remember the promise that the seed of the woman would come, would have his heel struck, but in the course of having his heel struck, his heel would, dis- would deliver the head crushing blow. This is what the people of God had always been waiting for. And Jesus, through the cross, delivered that victorious blow. And in being raised from the dead, he has ascended to the throne on high, where Caesar is not Lord, but where Jesus is Lord of all the universe. And for now, he continues to love his enemies. For now, he continues to cause his sun to shine and his rain to pour on those who are good and bad, those who are just and unjust. But a time is coming when that will end and where he will sit on his judgment seat and where we will stand with him as those who have been saved, not because we were better, but because of his self-sacrificial love. But beloved, until that time comes, it is not our role to try to minister the gospel in the same ethos as the nations. It is not for us to take up arms. It is not for us to use power and force. It is for us to take up the weirdness of the cross. There is a a historian that I like to, to read and like to listen to who is, was raised Christian but went through a period of agnosticism. 
And he tells this account of what helped draw him out of his agnosticism and back to the faith of his childhood. As a historian, he was hired by the BBC to put together a documentary on the rise of the Islamic State. And what did that mean? And part of, it didn't actually end up in the documentary, but part of that time that he served, he found himself in northern Iraq trying to understand the rise of ISIS or the Islamic State. And, and he went to, um, to a monastery where he talked to this, this Christian who had been serving there for 70 years and talked about how the monastery had become a safe haven for the Christians of northern Iraq who had been chased out of their homes, who were being killed, who were being enslaved, who were being crucified. And he tells this story about walking through the streets of Sinjar, seeing the crosses and seeing bodies hanging on them. And he said, it was in that moment that all of his professional studies of the Roman Empire finally came to life. And he was ashamed of the way that he had been enticed by the mythology of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire who used the cross as a symbol of its power to defeat and to enslave. But he realized the reason he was so taken aback was because so many hundreds of years had passed between the Roman Empire and the day he was standing there. And he came to realize even though he had been attempting to deny it, the meaning of the cross had forever been changed for him as being a symbol of conquering, self-giving love. And it was in that moment that he realized it wasn't through argumentation, it wasn't through legislation, It was in coming face to face with the meaning of the cross and the weirdness, the strangeness of someone choosing to be weak in order to provide others strength. That the depths of the gospel grabbed his heart. And beloved, our witness for Christ if we try to iron out and smooth out the weirdness that what the cross means is that the weak win. And if we are not willing to embrace feeling weak, feeling out of step, if we're not willing to to embrace not having to be in power to bear witness for Christ, 
then what we will bear witness to is something other than the love of God who loves his enemies by sharing his beneficence. What is it that you would prefer? Would you prefer to sit in the seat of judgment? Or would you prefer to be judged by your enemy and possibly crucified to bear witness to the superiority of the life of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, loving our enemies is it, it's, it's, it, it's so beyond what we want to do, let alone what we are willing to try. And so fill us with a vision of yourself, of your beneficence to us when we were your enemies, your love to us as Christ died on that cross and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, may we be so captured by the love of Christ and your beneficence towards your creation that we would be willing to take up the cross to follow you and that every sacrifice that is made would bear, bear witness that there is something greater than this life. There is something eternal that there is an inheritance that is kept for us, that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is waiting for those who find their vindication not in defending their pride, but found in the vindication of your Son. Father, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.